Amen. Amen. Well, thank you, John and Debbie, for reading. That is, that is a long passage. As you probably have gathered by now, we are returning to our series in the book of Acts. We're, we're doing part two, walking through this book, and, and today we have, we have a big chunk that we're going to be working through. It is, it is one of the longest passages uh, I think we've done here in a very long time at least. Normally, we take much smaller sections, but but for today, we really want to just be able to see this whole story of what's going on, right? It's the story of, of Stephen and, and his martyrdom. He is the first martyr of the church. And, and, and while unfortunately, he's also not the last martyr, right? The, the, the history of the church has been, uh, there have been people who have laid down their lives to hold fast to Jesus for a long time. Nearly all of the disciples of Jesus gave their life. And, and for 300 years or so, after Jesus rose again, people gave their life for Jesus, right? There was persecution uh, up and down all throughout that time. In fact, one of the early church fathers, uh, a man by the name of Tertullian, he, he wrote about this time because he noticed that even though the church was persecuted, that they kept on growing through all of it. He, he's perhaps most famous for his quote, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church, and you may have heard that, that quote before, but what you might not realize is that he didn't actually say exactly those words. That's a bit of a summary of what he wrote. He wrote uh, many, many years ago a letter to one of the judges at the time who was putting Christians to death. And in this letter, he writes this. He says, but do your worst and rack your inventions for tortures for Christians. It is all to no purpose. You do but attract the world and make it fall the more in love with our religion. The more you mow us down, the thicker we rise. The Christian blood you spill is like the seed you sow. It springs from the earth again and fructifies the more. There's a word for you, fructifies, to bear fruit. One of the things that just stands out to me from, from that quote from his life it's just the, the courage, the boldness, the grit he had in his faith to stand firm in what he believed despite the fact that he would probably have to give his life for it. In fact, as you read many of the uh, early church martyrs, we realize something very quickly. They were not half-committed Christians. They were all in. They were courageous and bold in their faith. As my prayer for us as a church, as we, as we jump back into the book of Acts, and as we're going to see that, that persecution is, is, is increasing throughout these next couple of chapters that we're going to be reading, my prayer is that we would actually begin to emulate their, their boldness, their courage, their grit, and their commitment to the gospel. And hear me, that last part is absolutely key. We're not called to be reckless people. Not to be cavalier with our lives or pick fights with people, but unreservedly committed to the good news of Jesus. And see, that's what Stephen in this passage shows us so powerfully. He is committed to the good news, to the gospel that Jesus alone can save. And so my prayer for us as we, as we go through this passage, as we continue into this book that a fire might actually burn in our hearts for Jesus that is undaunted by any challenge we may face. 
So let's get back into this book. If you have a Bible, let me invite you to open. Acts chapter seven is where we're gonna be picking up the story. We started this series uh, last fall, starting at the beginning of the book of Acts and looking at this small group of believers who were left. After the resurrection of Jesus and he ascends, he, he commissions his disciples to go and to preach the good news, but they had to wait for the Holy Spirit to come. And so they gather together and they're praying and they're waiting and the Holy Spirit comes upon them like tongues of fire and Peter gets up and he preaches his first sermon and he, afterwards 3,000 people are saved on that day. The church explodes into the scene in Jerusalem and the church gathers together. They're eating together, they're praying together, they're committed to hearing the word and following after it. The disciples are doing miracles in this city. Healing are happening. There's an excitement and a buzz as the church grows more and more every single day. But as the church is growing, so opposition now begins to mount after them. The Jewish leaders begin to oppose them. Starts out small, just threats. Tells them to stop speaking. Soon afterwards, they throw them into jail for a little while, but it's starting to get worse and worse. And what we're going to see as we walk through these chapters is that, in fact, actually the church is going to be persecuted out of Jerusalem. They're not going to be destroyed, but they're going to be forced out into the surrounding regions, into Judea and Samaria. But if we've been paying attention to the story up till now, actually that really shouldn't surprise us. That's what Jesus called his disciples to do in the first place, to share the good news in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And so what we see here is that actually that, that's exactly part of God's plan. In fact, God was going to use this persecution as the catalyst for the gospel going forward. By God's design, the church would not grow in peace or comfort, but in persecution, death, and isolation. In fact, what we're going to look at today is the beginning of God's plan to spread the gospel. The conflict in Jerusalem has, has reached a breaking point. They've grabbed a man by the name of Stephen. We were introduced to him earlier in the book of Acts. He, he was a, a faithful man. He was chosen to be a deacon in the church, and, and most importantly, he was filled with the Holy Spirit. As he was speaking and teaching people uh, about Jesus, they grab him and they force him into this trial for his very life. And very, very similar to what happens to Jesus, they have people lined up ready to accuse him. Uh, and so if you look back in, in chapter 6, verse 13, it says they set up false witnesses who said, this man never ceases to speak words against the holy place and the law. Right? They accuse Stephen of wanting to destroy the temple and to do away with the law of Moses. And so Stephen here, what we've read this whole passage is really his response. It's his speech, his defense of what he believes, how he's going to defend himself from these accusations. And really, it's, it's a whole summary of the Old Testament, isn't it? Right? He walks through these huge, huge passages. And so if you're feeling like as the passage was read, you're getting a bit lost and you're thinking to yourself, what exactly is going on here? Don't worry, that's exactly how I felt when I first read it as well. But really, what Stephen's doing is he's weaving two themes together through his speech. It's the theme of God's promise that is coming and of the rejection of the people of God, that the people actually rejected God. And so we're going to walk through that and see these promises that God make, makes, but I also want us to see 
I want us to see the, the fulfillment of them and the mercy that are found in Jesus. And then finally, we're, we're just going to spend a little bit of time looking at what that commitment to the gospel looks like. All right? So that's what we're going to do. We're going to walk through this passage, and we're going we're to start off with this 10,000-foot view of the Old Testament that Stephen gives us, right? He's been accused of wanting to get rid of the law of Moses, and so it's probably not a coincidence then that he spends most of his time talking about the books that Moses himself wrote. He, he walks us through and he grabs sort of these, these highlights and, and to weave these themes together, right? God's promise and rejection. In many ways, that, those two themes we see all throughout the Old Testament. It's a wonderful summary of what goes on. The expectation that God's promises are still yet to come and yet at the same time we see the rejection of God's messengers and in fact, the rejection of God himself. So Stephen begins this whole discussion right back in the book of Genesis with Abraham, right? You remember the story, Abraham is called out of his land, out of his home to go into this promised land that God is going to give him. And yet, Stephen kind of summarizes for us in verse five. It says, yet he gave him no inheritance in it not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession to his offspring after him, though he had no child. I love the way that that Stephen kind of summarizes that for us and how impossible it seemed for God to fulfill those promises. God says, I'm gonna give you a land, but you won't get it, your children will get it. And Abraham's looking at God and saying, but I don't even have children. And God says, I'll make your offspring like the dust of the earth. See, I think Stephen begins here with Abraham as a reminder that the foundation of the people of God is an expectation that God will be faithful to his promises even if we haven't received it yet. That right from the beginning, they were waiting for the fulfillment of God's promises. The entire Old Testament is an expectation that something greater is yet to come. And so Stephen moves right from Abraham and he skips right down through Isaac, Jacob, down to Joseph. And here he kind of weaves in that second theme he wants to talk about, the the, the rejection of God's salvation by the people of Israel. Look back at our text, verse 9. It says, the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt, but God was with him. And one of the things I love about this whole speech is just how beautifully succinct Stephen makes these big, grand stories. The people of Israel at this time were just the 11 brothers, right? Joseph's 11 other brothers who reject him, sell him into slavery because they don't like him. And yet he is the one that God is going to use to bring them out of famine and give them a new home where they'll be safe for hundreds of years, right? It's this story of of God choosing someone who would be betrayed, but God was with him. He would be rejected, yet God would choose him to bring them to salvation. And so here Stephen has begun to set up these two themes that he's going to drive home to the council who's looking to put him to death, right? God's promises were always yet to come and God's messengers of salvation were always hated and rejected. I hope you can already begin to see where this is going, how this connects to Jesus himself. And so he keeps going with this and he brings up Moses. 
He walks all through the life of Moses, starting with you know, him as a baby in the river being adopted into Pharaoh's household. He walks through the whole episode that happens with, with Moses trying to defend an Israelite, one of his people, and he, he actually kills an Egyptian in the process. And the Israelite turns around and says, but who made you judge? Why should you get to rule over us? And so Moses ends up having to flee for his life, yet yet God meets him at the burning bush, calls him to rescue his people out of slavery. The one they rejected would be the one God chooses to save them. Look back at our text in verse 35. Stephen says, this Moses, who they rejected, saying, who made you a ruler and a judge, this man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. Though they had rejected Moses, God chose him to work salvation for the people of Israel. And Stephen here, he kind of, he emphasizes how important, how significant Moses is in the Bible. It's hard to kind of overestimate Moses as he has done so much, wrote, wrote, whoa, wrote the first five books of the Bible. He's the one who brought them out of Egypt, out of slavery. He's the one who spoke to God face to face. He mediates this covenant between the people and God. He performs miracles and gave them the very words of God. And as Stephen continues to to kind of show all of his accolades, he also says, verse 37, this is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. Stephen here, he's quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 18 where Moses himself talks to the people of Israel and he says, I want you to expect that someone will come after me who shall be greater than I am. And so Stephen here is doubling down on both of the themes he set up. Not only is Moses the, the re- savior who is rejected by the people he's trying to save, he is also promising that there is someone greater yet to come. Another prophet like Moses who would rule over the people of God, who performed miracles, who would redeem his people out of slavery, who would be rejected and hated by the very people he came to save. They were supposed to be looking for someone like that. And so Stephen is making the point, if you claim to follow Moses, you should be expecting Jesus. That's who you should be looking for. But they had rejected Moses. And in fact, they had rejected the God who sent him. Not just at the beginning of Moses' life was he rejected, but in fact, again and again throughout their history, If you go back to the book of Numbers, you can see how many times they tried to, you know, get him out, how they tried to take over from him. In fact, as they were doing that, they rejected the God who sent him. They set up a golden calf to worship instead of God. And all throughout the history going into the land of Israel, they struggled with the same thing over and over and over again with these idols that were set up, other gods who they would worship and sacrifice to. God is being faithful to his promises, but they continually reject him. And so Stephen is building this case that the Israelite people have ignored the promises of God, have rejected his messengers, and he has one final nail he's going to sink into this coffin. And I think it's the last one they would have felt the most. 
They not only rejected Moses, they rejected even the temple itself. The temple was a symbol in the Jewish culture of their identity, of their heritage, of their place of belonging, and yet Stephen says, even that they have rejected. He reminds them Moses built the tabernacle in the wilderness after the pattern God showed him. He calls it, in verse 44, the tent of witness. Right? Often it's referred to as a tent of the testimony because that's where they actually kept the word of God. It was stored there so that when they came to the tabernacle or later when they brought it into the temple, it was the place that stood as a witness for this is the word of God. And as they came to worship and sacrifice, it was to humble yourself under God. And yet by the time of Jeremiah, the temple had become nothing more than a talisman. It was a good luck charm. It was a way of twisting God's arm to do whatever they wanted him to do. They would say to themselves, well, we have God's house. He's not going to let anything bad happen to his house. Surely we are just fine no matter what. And so Stephen here quotes in verses 49 and 50. He quotes from the prophet Isaiah. In it, God is talking. He says, Heaven is my throne. The earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? He says, don't you think you've made my house? I made everything. I made all things. I'm not tied down to the building you created. And Stephen here, he stops a little bit short, but I think he expects his, his hearers to understand where the rest of the passage goes. So let me just quote to you from Isaiah 66. This is just picking up where Stephen stops. He says, all these things my hand has made, so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. See, the people of Israel had actually rejected the proper use of the temple. It wasn't a good luck charm. It wasn't a talisman. It wasn't the, the thing that they could use to twist God's arm. It was the place where they were called to come and submit themselves to God. Instead, they tried to turn it into a place where God would submit to them. And having shown this, this pattern now over and over, how, how they have rejected God's messengers, how they have rejected God himself. Stephen says, verse 51, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. I hear Stephen is just turning the tables completely on them. They accuse him of wanting to get rid of the law of Moses, and yet Stephen's whole point is, but you're the one who's not following what Moses said. They accuse him of wanting to destroy the temple and yet Stephen flips that around and says, but you're the one who's not using the temple for what it was created for. You've not submitted yourself to God. You've turned the temple into a marketplace to extort people of their money. You've turned it into a place of false piety where you have ignored and rejected the one God has sent to save you. Verse 52, he continues, which of the prophets did not your fathers persecute? They killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, 
whom you have now betrayed and murdered, you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Stephen turns around their own argument on them. It's not him who has abandoned the law, but them. They've rejected the one Moses himself promised was coming and put to death the one God sent to save them. They've put to death Jesus. They've rejected God himself. And so hearing that, they pick up rocks to stone him. Now before we get there, and and hopefully you're still with me, still alive, you might be wondering the question, well, why are we talking about this again? Why do we have this? This is the longest speech that's recorded in Acts. Luke clearly thought it was important, but but it almost sounds like we're listening to a conversation that we're not really a part of, right? I'm not Jewish. I didn't put Jesus to death. I'm not misusing the temple. Why exactly are we talking about this? I can think of a number of reasons that we could talk about. We can talk about how the whole Bible is focused on the coming of Jesus. From start to finish, Jesus is in view. We could talk about how it's important not just to simply know the law or have a Bible with you on your shelf, on your phone, but actually to know it and live it out. That was the whole problem. We could talk about how we are called to still wait for the promises of God. Even after the coming of Jesus, we're called like Abraham, having received part but yet not the fullness of what God has promised for us one day, what it looks like to wait patiently. But I think what I'd like us to consider here for just a little bit is to actually see this story and and see the pattern, not just of the rejection that the people had to God, but actually the pattern of God's faithfulness and mercy towards them. Despite the the, the constant rejection of God, despite constantly going against the messengers that God had sent or, or his word that he had given, God is faithful to his promises and he sends Jesus to die on the cross to be the punishment for our sins. And we need to see that pattern of God's faithfulness, not just in light of what they have done, but in light of our own sin. See, as we read this, we may may not reject the purpose of the temple. That might not be the sin that we have. We might not worship idols or serve other gods or give sacrifices, but all of us have that same pattern of sin in our lives. All of us have those points where we think to ourselves, well, I think I actually know best that I don't really need to think about what God might want for my life. I think I can do it on my own. In fact, I don't really care that much about what God might have to say. See, while our sin might look different on the outside, it's the same pattern that exists in our heart. It's the same rejection of God. And therefore, we're in need of that same mercy. But here's the good news. It's that the condemnation isn't the end. God is faithful to his promises. He did send Jesus as the fulfillment of all that he had promised to Abraham. He gives in Jesus a brand new land, a new people coming together and an eternal blessing. 
Jesus is the greater Joseph, though rejected by his brothers, saves us in our time of need. He is the greater Moses who leads us out of slavery to sin, calls us to follow him and stands to mediate between God and us. He is the greater sacrifice who enters not into an earthly temple made by us, but into the heavenly temple before God himself and offers up his own life in our place. For everyone who would trust in him, our sins, our sinful patterns are paid for in full. And so we need to see this because as we see the pattern of our own sin, we ought to also see the pattern of God's faithfulness and mercy towards us despite our rejection of him. When we see how God led the people of Israel despite their sin, how God has been faithful, it leads us to praise his glory, greater appreciation for his mercy, greater worship of his grace. When we see our sin reflected back at us, it highlights the superior faithfulness and mercy of God himself. The grace of God is greater than all our sins. God did not abandon his promises even when they rejected him. You have not outsinned the grace of God. You have not found the bottom of God's ability to forgive. If you would turn and place your trust in Jesus, you will find his grace is more sufficient than even for the greatest of sinners. See, Luke writes this down for us so that not only would we see the pattern of our sin, but that we would see the greater pattern of God's faithfulness to us in Jesus Christ. So what's your response then to Jesus? In our passage, we see the crowd's response pretty clearly. Look back at verse 54. It says, now when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. Stephen had pointed out their sin, and instead of taking the opportunity to repent, they were furious. They hardened their hearts against God, and hear me, I urge you, do not do that today. When your sin is revealed to you, do not harden yourself, but instead seek more the grace of God. Put your trust more on his grace and forgiveness to you. And see, here's where we see Stephen's speech, his faith, and his commitment to the gospel come into practice most. God meets him in this moment, this final hour. Verse 55, it says, but he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. It's a beautiful picture. Jesus welcomes Stephen with open arms. Well done, good and faithful servant. You have run the race well. I'm not sure every martyr who's ever died has seen Jesus, but I do know that God has particular graces for all of us in our dying hour. God does not stay with us throughout our life and then leave us on the doorstep, but rather welcomes us in. But Stephen's gonna show his faith perhaps most in these last moments, even even up until his entire speech till now, 
verse 57. It says, but they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. As they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul approved of his execution. This is the first martyr of the Christian church. At his death, he did not breathe out threats or condemnation or curses. Instead, he had one thing on his mind. He prayed to Jesus that God would have mercy on them. So I said at the beginning, I wanted us to see his commitment to the gospel, and here it is. He asked God would not hold this sin against them, the sin of his own murder. Prayed God would show them mercy, that God would save them, and God answered that prayer. At the very least, in one person. We're told Saul was there approving of what was happening. Saul will go on to persecute the church terribly. He'll be one of the greatest threats the church has at this time as he's going to viciously attack them. Most likely he is in part, if not the one, who is whipping up the crowd in order to to send them into this frenzy to put Stephen to death. And I'll assume many of you know where the story goes from here. God answers Stephen's prayer and he forgives Saul of his sin. Stephen's commitment was to the forgiveness found in Jesus to the very end and God forgives Saul. Or let me even put it another way. Saul, later Paul, will face no divine punishment for his actions. Maybe that even strikes you as odd. Un- unfair even. Wait a minute, he-, he, should have to, he should have to do something for that. That was a horrible thing to do. He can't just get off scot-free. I mean, that wouldn't be fair, would it? Again, here we see Stephen's faith shine so brightly. Not only in his willingness, his unflinching determination, even to go to death, being faithful to Jesus, but we see his faith brightest in his clear understanding of forgiveness. Stephen knows God did not save him because he was good enough to forgive, but because God is merciful and faithful to his promises. He he was saved because Jesus took all of the punishment for his sins, and he did not pay for them. He had not deserved God's mercy, and therefore he could freely offer it to those who do not deserve it either. God's salvation isn't earned and so it can be given to those who do not deserve it and that is what Stephen prays for with his last breath. A commitment to the gospel means we willingly extend the mercy we have not earned to those who have not deserved it. So let me ask you, is that how you know the mercy of God? We've just come out of an entire series on salvation. And I hope in this series you have left with at least an understanding that that our salvation is not about what we can do, but but about what Jesus has done. He saves us. If you don't remember anything else, I hope at least that one stuck. 
But the question is, how well do you know that? See, it's one thing to know that in, in a very just intellectual sense. It's another thing entirely to know that in the midst of opposition and pain, to pray that for those who hurt us. God, forgive them as you have forgiven me. See, that's what a commitment to the gospel looks like. It's the recognition that Jesus alone saves, not the basis of anything we have done or not done, but because God is faithful to his promises and is merciful towards us. So let me ask you the question that I think we're forced to ask in this context from this passage. Are you willing to pray that for those who have hurt you? It's by no means an easy question. I don't mean it to be light or flippant, but I think it's what we're called to wrestle with. As we see the example of Stephen, who is so committed to the gospel that he prays for those who are executing him at that moment, we have to wrestle with that prayer. We have to wrestle perhaps even with our own hearts. Do we think that we are forgiven because we didn't do anything that bad? Or do we think that we are forgiven because Jesus is that great? See, unless we see our own sinfulness reflected back at us, we will never see the greatness of God's mercy. See, if we understand we didn't earn it. In fact, all that we have done is the rejection of God over and over again. The pattern in our life was not seeking after him, but rejecting him. Yet God has been faithful to his promise towards us. He has worked salvation in Jesus, not because we earn it, but because he is merciful towards us. Then let us share that mercy with others. Let us freely give of what we have been freely given. Let our commitment to the gospel be shown in our unwavering pursuit of undeserving sinners to be forgiven. Let that be our final breath too. May we be so courageous. May God fill us with his spirit so powerfully that we would live like that. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much. Lord, we thank you for your mercy, for your grace towards us. Lord, we thank you that we couldn't earn our salvation and therefore you have accomplished all of it. That our forgiveness is not based on who we are, of what we can do or haven't done, but it's based on the greatness of what Jesus has done. Father, we thank you for that. Lord, we praise your mercy and your grace and Lord, I ask, would you fill us with courage and boldness Lord, I pray, fill our hearts afresh that we might long to share what you have given to us so freely with those around us. Lord, I pray, hold us fast to your gospel that even in the midst of trial, of difficulty, of pain, we might be committed wholly and entirely to you. We ask these things in your name. Amen.